Pizza time. So, Parth, what have you been eating? Wow, thanks for asking, Trent. <laughs> I had birthday cake ice cream in an ice cream cone, as it were, because I... Oh, what were you about to ask me, Trent? No, I was just going to say hashtag fuck, fuck cup gang, because anyone who gets the ice cream in a cup has lost their inner child. Is this a thing? Is this like a legitimate like war? Is there is there such thing as a cup gang, or are you just being facetious? I'd say there's two types of people in this world, and the, the only <laughs> known benefit is that you get it in a cup, so then you can get more toppings, but I just think it isn't worth the exchange rate, because, you know, then there's there, there's no waste ah. in the cone. And eating an ice cream cone is one of the few experiences where the food actually gets better as you go. But, um, Parth, thanks for asking. I just had a smoothie I made myself. We, we have a guest, um, Adam Volrich from I the Duck Podcast. Welcome. Whoa, what'd you have? Hello. Thank you for, uh, for having me on. What did I have? I had... Um, well, actually, uh, our fridge died, so we have no food in the house. So I, uh, we, we treated ourselves to some delivery, and I got a very delicious salad with a large piece of grilled salmon on it. What happened to your fridge? It died. Well, it's it just died. it's dead. It is it has ceased to be. Are are you uh, in the process of getting a new fridge? Yeah, we'll have a new one by next week. But until then, slim pickings over here. You're living off the land. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty much. Did you do, I mean, li- living in New York, and I know you made every effort to not leave your apartment for obvious reasons. Uh, did, did did you end up doing all of your own cooking primarily? Um, No, I I did for a little bit, but okay. I, 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 you know, I know a lot of people derive joy from that. And unfortunately, uh, I am not one of them. So uh, we we do some, you know, it's this like meal kit thing where they bring you uh, a bunch sure. of you know pre-made meals and you you heat those up. So it's a it's a very lazy way of living, but I don't know, it works for me. Do you attest for 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 these programs? I mean, one of these meal kits sponsors every podcast known to man. <laughs> yeah, or or, or, or me undies. It's one of the other. Yeah, that uh, Casper mattresses. Um, that's the other one. Yeah, no, I use uh, I use Cook Unity, uh, and it's very good. So. <laughs> <laughs> if only we could offer them a, them a promo code. <laughs> if only. On that note, should we cut to the intro? Indeed. Yes, we have a podcast to do. Welcome back to Craft Services, where we talk about... What do we say, Trent? The movies. This is our pod. We have a podcast. Each week we talk about a film and have a crew member of that film that worked on that movie. Last week we had Joseph Sissio. He was a second unit camera operator that worked on the movie and its sequel, Spider-Man 3. So check that out because I thought he was cool. Did you like him, Trent? I liked it. Only listen to it if you want to. If you don't, you just keep listening to this episode because it'll hopefully be good too. We'll just be very sad though. But Speaking of guests, we have with us a former college professor. I think technically I'm just an instructor, but <laughs> D- don't don't be modest, Adam. And uh, a so mentor, humble. a friend, Adam Volerich. Thank you for coming on. Thank you so much for for having me on. It is a it's a pleasure to be here. 
Long-time listener, first-time caller. Uh, speak about your show and tell, tell people at home where they can find you and what your show's about and all that. Yeah, yeah so I, I work on a show called Eye of the Duck, which is a podcast about also the movies, but specifically the scenes that make them special. Uh, and so each week we discuss a film and we search for its Eye of the Duck scene. This is a concept we've stolen from David Lynch, uh, where he says that when you study a duck... The only way to really truly understand it is to look at its eye. And so each week we try and figure out what is the, the eye of each film. And I co-host that with my, my good friend and also a fellow Rutgers graduate, uh, Dom Nero, uh, who's a writer and video editor at Esquire. It's an excellent podcast. And as we said in our Oscar extravaganza, it's better than ours. So if you're listening to oh, us, you like us. If you like us, you'll love Adam's podcast. Wow, that's very kind of you to say, uh, and it's uh, not a compliment I can accept, but but thank you. So we've come here for a very important reason. Uh, we've, we, we blew through Spider-Man week, no problem, and we've graduated to Spider-Man 2 week. Congratulations. Um, and here we find ourselves. Parth, would you like to open with the synopsis of the film? Sure. So back to a smaller synopsis. Peter Parker is beset with troubles in his failing personal life as he battles a brilliant scientist named Dr. Otto Octavius. I'd say it's, it's pretty good. It's pretty simple. Short, short and sweet, to the point. Yeah, one sentence, you know. Uh, a budget, $200 million. Box office, more or less $800 million. Uh, and the budget of the first, for all those curious parties, was $140 million. So, quick math, $60 extra million. Parth, production history. Sure. So on May 8th, 2002, once Spider-Man had a record-breaking $115 million opening weekend, Sony Pictures announced a sequel to come out in 2004. Writers Alfred Goh, Miles Miller, Michael Chabon, and David Kep, who was the credited screenwriter of the first movie, all wrote separate drafts of the film. Then Raimi sifted through a bunch of the drafts by all of these writers with uh, screenwriter Alvin Sargent, who did uncredited rewrites on the first movie, and uh, picked and chose basically what the best parts were. He decided that this film had to explore Peter's conflict with his personal wants against his responsibility. Doc Ock was chosen as the villain because they thought he was visually interesting as well as being a physical match for Spider-Man, as well as a sympathetic figure for Peter. Uh, in doing so, he changed much of the character's backstory and added the idea of Otto Octavius, spoilers, being a hero. It takes partial influence from Doc Ock's debut in the 1963 and 1966 storyline, If This Be My Destiny, but it is mostly inspired by the 1967 storyline, Spider-Man No More, which is The Amazing Spider-Man issue number 50. As we said, because of all of these aforementioned drafts, there were multiple versions of this movie that could have existed. Different universes, different spider-verses, per se. Indeed. Ooh. Yep. So, Tobey <laughs> Maguire had suffered a back injury on uh, Seabiscuit, which was just before this movie, and so because of that, it was in doubt whether he'd be able to return. For some time, it was potentially going to be Jake Gyllenhaal who was going to take over the role, but Maguire decided to take the part after all. Which is such a, a crazy prospect to me, because they subbed in a different actor for, you know, Rachel Dawes in The Dark Knight, and I find that so distracting, and uh, the thought that they would do it for the main character and act like nothing happened, 
Uh, I'm glad that they didn't go down that road yeah. as much as I like Jake Gyllenhaal. And he ended up being in a Spider-Man movie anyways. It would be a very, very different film with Jake Gyllenhaal, yeah. who I think is a fantastic actor, but there is something so special about what the, the specificity of what Toby brings to this role, I think, is sure. is what makes this this franchise. And And I think especially at that point, he was a little, he's a little too pretty. Yeah, that's part of it. Toby is like wonderfully dopey looking. <laughs> yeah. But uh, Michael Chabon's draft had Doc Ock being a younger man who was in love with Mary Jane. His mechanical limbs would use endorphins to counteract the pain of being attached to his body. In the draft, he injures two muggers on a date, horrifying Mary Jane. And this resulted in a battle with Spider-Man in which his tentacles are fused together and the fusion kills him. Also in this draft, Octavius is revealed to be the creator of the radioactive spider from the first movie, and he gives Peter an antidote to remove his powers, obviously something they ended up uh, conceptually lifting for the final film. Uh, In the David Kep script, which was titled The Amazing Spider-Man, it weirdly enough has a lot of similar plot elements to the eventual Amazing Spider-Man movie that came out in 2012 as it has Peter dating Gwen Stacy, it has the death of Gwen Stacy, and it talks about his relationship with his parents, who in his draft would have been killed by Doc Ock, and it would have had a much darker tone. Did, did you know if Kep any, ended up having anything to do with that, that, uh, that iteration of the film? I'm pretty sure James Vanderbilt wrote that. Although, gotcha. I mean, they're so similar that I feel like, at the very least, conceptual ideas had to have been taken. Yeah. I'm happy they abandoned all of the Doc Ock is trying to steal away Mary Jane romantically stuff. Mm-hmm. But what I do think is conceptually interesting is the stuff about Peter having the option to remove his powers, because that's a big part of what this movie is about. And uh, I, I just think that would have been an interesting angle. But, but clearly... But a very literal way of expressing that. Yeah, yeah, but what I like so much about this movie is it's a Spider-Man movie where at different times Spider-Man chooses not to be Spider-Man and he physically can't even be Spider-Man if he wanted to. Right, yeah. So we've got some fun facts. Um, Willem Dafoe, you know, the Green Goblin from the original, wasn't planning to make an appearance in this movie uh, until, as legend has it, he was walking to his apartment in New York and saw the film crew crewing and filming and he stepped in and things went from there. There's a shot where Peter flips over an oncoming car, and uh, the stunt doubles did it also, but famously, Tobey Maguire's flip is featured instead. Stan Lee was originally the guy who stole the pizza on the balcony, but there was something wrong with the audio. Stan Lee was the guy that said, hey, you stole that guy's pizza. Oh, that's like a perfect Stan Lee line, too. Yeah. But there was something wrong with the audio, so then they gave him a different cameo later where he just saves some guy. Which I like more, because my problem with the new, I mean, rest in peace, the new Stan Lee cameos is that he's, like, the DJ, and that he does, like, you know, he plays much more of a major role, and I think the fun of it is, is like, the, the Hitchcock of it all, of, like, the briefness. Yeah, the, the, blink, the blink and you miss him. This is, as of 2020, uh, the first and only live-action Spider-Man film to win an Oscar, you know, uh, for- Visual I mean, effects. Outside of Spider-Verse, Yeah. Um, and Danny Elfman, who did the score for the first two, infamously did not do the, the score for Spider-Man 3 after a falling out with Sam Raimi, but don't worry, they cleared it up, and they made Oz the Great and Powerful together, so, um, it's all good in the end. Everyone's favorite Sam Raimi movie. 
Do you know? Do you know what happened between them, or is it just sort of gossip? I I do know. I have a, I have a quote here. I'll read the quote and then Parth, you give the. the so, um, Danny Elfman said, "To see such a profound negative change in a human being was almost enough to make me feel like I didn't want to make films anymore." Wow. Which scares me because Sam Raimi. I only have the director's commentary as a reference, but seems like a, a pretty pretty uh, cheery guy. Wow, very interesting. Yes. So so what happened basically is famously directors use temp music while they edit, yeah. but and composers generally hate that because they get attached to the temp music and whatnot. So what happened was Sam Raimi had basically been asking Danny Elfman to start scoring things a lot more like the temp music, especially in the scene where Doc Ock says, show me the blue light, Rosie. There's a musical motif in that sequence that is sort of ripped from Hellraiser or Hellraiser 3 or something like that, which is a score done by Christopher Young. And so Danny Elfman kept sort of doing it. And then he was like, screw you. I'm the composer. Spider-Man's 2 score is sort of an amalgamation of a bunch of a bunch of composers coming in to help fix it. I think John Ottman worked on it. I think John Powell worked on it. And then eventually they ended up actually bringing Christopher Young, whose music they were sampling in the first place, and just had him re sort of remix everything. And then he ended up doing the score for Spider-Man 3 and um, Drag Me to Hell, which wow. was his next movie. That's so funny, too, because the score for Drag Me to Hell sounds like Danny Elfman. Yeah. I mean, he's got a very specific sound he likes, I guess. But, I mean, I guess everything ended up working out. Yeah. It's interesting that this is, you know, uh, more of a diluted version. Or, or as you described, it's, it's you know, it's a compilation of a bunch of different sources. Because I think this is considered the preferred Danny Elfman Spider-Man soundtrack of the two. This is my favorite of the trilogy. It is. It's mine as well. There's some, there's some great tunes here. If you want to listen to those tracks, because I'm a nerd... When I was like 15, I, I found out about, about this drama and there's, there's, a, there's a website called Download-Soundtracks. And if you look, you can find the Spider-Man 2 complete album where you can find a bunch of unused music. Um, so the train sequence was completely rescored. The Raindrops Keep Falling on My Head sequence originally had score over it. Wow. There's, there's a bunch of scenes with like completely different tracks. So. Go out there. I'm not saying it's illegal, but I won't say it's legal either. <laughs> uh, so Tobey Maguire had some back problems, which you refer to about Seabiscuit, and there's a small nod to this, and they show a bunch of newspapers, and I'm not a member of the CinemaSins team, so I had to read this somewhere else. But they paused it, and they read the news blurb, and it someone clearly from the prop department put in uh, can chronic back pain lead to brain shrinkage which um <laughs> he, he he hearing you know the complaints of people of toby mcguire you know who who've come in contact with them makes some sense uh speaking of toby mcguire's agent asked for 25 million dollars or 10 percent of the gross of the film uh whichever was more and this was politely denied and uh final detail the guy who's beat up in the alley when peter is just like decides to walk away He's carrying, he's like the trash guy who's, he has a bag and it's supposed to be the discarded Spider-Man suit, but it says that the plot does not make this clear. Yeah, that, that isn't clear. <laughs> uh, yeah, I didn't think so either. Uh, luckily, I watched the Spider-Man 2.1 version, which uh, Parth said was his least favorite of the editor's cuts. But here I have a few of what I considered the noteworthy deleted scenes. Uh, the uh, scene in the elevator 
with uh, like the awkward standoff um, where Peter can't uh, use his powers anymore. In this version, it's like much more of a comedic scene, and there are much you know more jokes. Well, it's already quite funny. Well, it's already quite funny, but I think the comedy is that it's a one shot, and that there's and that it's just them standing like quietly and shuffling around in the body language. Mm-hmm. And and then in this one, it's uh, the advertising guy doing like an elevator pitch. I mean, literally. <laughs> then there's the J. Jonah Jameson dressing up as Spider Man, which is pretty pretty wild. I love that. It's amazing. It's awesome. And it, it really breaks my heart that it, it didn't make an appearance, but tonally, I kind of understand. Yeah. And then the last thing, I, the longest scene that was cut was Mary Jane and kind of an unnamed female friend just talking in a shoe store about love and about marriage and stuff. That was cut too. Uh, now we have some one-star reviews. Wait, hold up. You didn't, you didn't mention my, my favorite thing from the 2.1 cut, which is the extended part of the raindrops falling on my head montage where there's like two, there's like mirrored Peter Parker, like against himself. And it's just the goofiest looking effect I've ever seen, but it's, it's, it's really delightful. <laughs> is that, is that not in the theatrical one? No, I don't think so. Cause I, I watched the theatrical for this one. It's not, it's just him walking in a long shot. Yeah. Oh my God. My memory is a lie. The reflective image with his magnified head. It's really too rich. Yeah, and it's incredible. He, like with Peter, like standing up, he does the Paul Thomas Anderson thing where he like films them like three times and then like cuts them together. And I just think that's a really yeah. nice trick too. Yes. Parth, you want to read our first one star review? Sure. So this is from Hayes Z. Waller. Help! Three exclamation points. I just got the Amazon Fire ellipses. <laughs> Help! Three exclamation points. <laughs> I just got the Amazon Fire Stick and my children keep ordering movies. I have the password set up and it still charges me. I even deleted all my purchase options, yet I am still charged, in all caps. Digital orders don't let you return or dispute. A huge flaw. Wow. Adam, do you want to f- field this next one? Sure. Uh, this one is from uh, Sandra. Uh, one out of five stars from May 25th, 2019. I did not order Spider-Man 2. I did not order Spider-Man 2. <laughs> she didn't Do you think it. she ordered Spider-Man 2? Uh, you know, she it's uh, it's hard yeah. to say based on the, uh, the, the text here. Yeah, context clues. Uh, this third one is, we've really leaned into, I mean, it's Spider-Man 2, so there are only so many negative reviews happening, so you need to go into the experience of it all, and that's where things can really go wrong. This third one is called Rip-Off, and it says, What a rip-off. Only the specials features DVD was in the case, which would upset anyone. Yeah. I'd consider that a ripoff. I'd, I'd, be, I'd be furious about that. Parth, you want to finish this off? Sure. This is from CTH Reviews. This movie has dazzling effects and action, but I'm sorry. I can't help but be annoyed by how stupid Peter has become and how even more... Uh, they've just put four asterisks. I'm assuming it's dumb. Mary Jane has become... And how idiotic Harry is thinking that just because Peter takes pictures of Spider-Man automatically means Peter knows who Spider-Man is. It also doesn't help that Spider-Man's powers disappear for no realistic biological reason. <laughs> I can't believe people just gloss over these flaws. Wow. The, the biggest biological flaw here isn't that he has spider powers in the first place. It's the sudden <laughs> lapse of the spider powers. Haven't you ever heard of the yips? Come on. 
he i mean that the doctor scene there's definitely a, a subtext of my friend has erectile dysfunction and sure and I, I, when I was a kid, I definitely didn't get that, but it's certainly the Spider-Man one of, uh, of you know, the, the allegory of, of webbing around the room. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Raimi seems to like that as a reference point. There is one dream where, in my dream, I'm Spider-Man, but I'm losing my powers. I'm climbing a wall, but I keep falling. Oh. So you're Spider-Man. In my dream. But actually, it's not even my dream. It's a friend of mine's dream. Oh. Somebody else's dream. So, Trent, we watched this movie, or did that not happen? Yeah, no, undeniably at this point. I'd say several times. Okay, okay. I I just wanted to make sure. So we had (laughs) thoughts, right? Yeah. Um, Adam, do you want to bring us in? Sure. So you just want my my general thoughts on on Spider-Man 2? This is something of a warm introduction. Later, we'll try to break down, we're trying to introduce some level of structure to the show of what works and what doesn't work. But uh, if you, I, I'm sure you have a rich history and you just want to give us a little a little intro. Yeah, I mean, I just, I think that this is probably my, my number one favorite superhero film. Uh, I think it is just a beautifully constructed piece of blockbuster filmmaking. And I think it is, it's, it's fantastic because it doesn't just have, it, it isn't just successfully functional as a piece of blockbuster filmmaking, but it also is so much a Sam Raimi film, you know, from every, every single moment, you know, and it's just amazing that you get to feel the director in every frame. And, you know, I'm, I'm not necessarily saying anything new here, but it's just disappointing these days that, you know, when you go and see a franchise, you know, blockbuster film based on a pre-existing IP, you you don't get much of a sense of who is making the film and it, it feels a little bit more like television. Uh, and this on the other hand feels more like a, you know, a, a piece of classic cinema almost. Yeah. that we, we spoke about that in our Spider-Man one discussion where we said that lots of times now where they get like an indie successful indie director that did a like $5 million movie. Yeah. Once they get to a $200 million budget, their style is kind of diluted. I mean, there's, re- there's reasons for that. It's not always their fault. You know, there's, there's the machine of it all. There's the, uh, I mean, M- Marvel specifically, and I'm assuming, you know, Lucasfilm will begin to go this way as well, but you know, they previs all the action sequences and, and they, they write those things, you know, without the filmmaker involved before they sign on. So, you know, there yeah. are reasons for it, but, but it's, it's refreshing with a movie like this, where you, this is, I would say with the Spider-Man movies are even more, they, they push Sam Raimi's style even further, which yeah. I've always found kind of crazy that yeah. he's able to infuse every scene with his kind of niche. I, I don't know if niche is the right word, but it's a very specific type of filmmaking. Yeah. I mean, if you look at the the sequence where, where Doc Ock wakes up in the, in the hospital and, uh, you know, murders all the doctors, that feels like something, you know, it, it feels both like it's, you know, evil dead, but also feels like it's a universal horror film. You know, it's, it's drawing on all of these, uh, these really interesting reference points and the way that he presents it, it's just like, he's off the leash. Like no one is, is reeling him in and telling him he can't do these things. And it's just a fantastic sequence. I, I think the thing that elevates this movie, um, compared to the first one, and that was a big, uh, 
a, a big pedestal to climb upon. Yeah. But is the visual effects, uh, the, the whatever growth happened in those two years, uh, I think comparing like the parade scene from Spider-Man 1 with yeah. all, you know, the ridiculous looking balloons next to just like falling or on uh, falling out of the sky or on the side of a building at any given moment in this movie where it's just like so gripping. Yeah. Willem Dafoe as like a classical actor really brings the first movie to the next level and Alfred Molina does the same exact thing. And which is why, I, I mean, along with the too many villains syndrome that the third movie suffers, I think, you know, the, the drop off in actor quality definitely plays a, a part in that also. I mean, it's, it's hard to live up to, to Doc Ock, you know, he, Alfred Molina plays him with such uh, you know, humanity and grace. And there are, there are moments of his performance where you almost want to stop yourself and say like, this is a superhero movie. Like, <laughs> like I can't yeah. believe he's doing this in a superhero film, you know? Uh, outside of the original hospital scene, which is just like, you know, horrific. I think it's like the best encapsulated single scene in the movie. But I, I think the best thing about Doc Ock over Green Goblin per se is like the amount of skin he has in the game. Like, you know, his wife died and this is all of his, his life's work compared to Doc Ock who just like lost his business. Um, and also I somehow think the ridiculous premise of, you know, four robotic arms being attached to this man is done in a somewhat realistic way that I'm like on board for. Well, they, they make a point of showing you the process of all of it. So even though it's Mm. incredibly silly, they make it believable by being like, well, look, here's how it attaches to him. It plugs directly into his spinal column and then they, they bring up all the stuff about artificial intelligence and they're like, ah, but don't worry, we've created this, uh, this very easy to destroy and conspicuously located uh, inhibitor chip made of glass, I guess, uh, that just snaps immediately. Um, I mean, it's very, it is silly, but he plays it so well. And he plays it uh, similarly to, to, to Tobey Maguire and just the general sort of tone of, of all of these, these Raimi films is he plays it with earnestness. You know, that, that's sort of the, the key to, to these films, I think. Yeah, uh, again, it, this movie is so similar to the first movie in a lot of ways. Yeah, it is. What we what or what I like at least is sort of there's no hint of irony in yeah. in any of what's happening, which I think is something that kind of plagues most blockbusters or th- films of this scale is the tendency to go isn't this stuff crazy and the characters are the ones doing it. Yeah. So it kind of removes a certain amount of gravitas you can actually have. With any of it, and I like one of the things I like about this movie is uh, James Gunn had a quote when he was doing press for Guardians Two, where he said, "With a sequel, you can either go bigger or you can go deeper." And I think this movie does a good job of going really deeper. It it kind of takes all of the flaws you can sort of throw at the first movie and then makes them like some of the high points of this movie. As much as I love Green Goblin, his origin story is kind of arbitrary, um, and he doesn't have a motivation really beyond "I'm kind of crazy." Well, yeah, they 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 make a point of establishing if he takes this drug, he will lose his mind. You know, so he's not operating uh, on the same plane of existence of, as the rest of us. But what I like about this movie is that it provides there's like a singular um, narrative thread that sort of permeates throughout everybody's arcs in the movie. Um, and, and I like that uh, Doc Ock, his whole arc functions 
as a as a mirror to Peter's, and it func- and yeah. Peter's arc functions as a mirror to Harry's, and it's a much more streamlined movie, I think. Streamlined, but also elegant. Like it's very elegant yeah. in the way that it weaves all of these things together, and and that extends to the the filmmaking itself. Uh, when you know Trent, you brought up the visual effects here, and there is something. I mean, elegant is the word I'm going to use, but there, there is an elegance to when you see Spider-Man flying through New York and the the way the camera moves to present that. Uh, it it really is uh, is very special. Yeah, and I think Bill Pope. Yes, uh, Bill Pope is the man. As, much as Don Burgess's work on the first movie was, it was great, but Bill Pope is just amazing. Um, and I think yeah. the switch to widescreen greatly benefits the movie. It feels a lot more cinematic when, when you compare it to the first movie. It also works so well to highlight Peter's loneliness uh, in those moments. You know, he just feels so alone and so small uh, in, at, at those times, uh, especially then when you compare that to when he's Spider-Man, where he feels so much larger than life in this, you know, huge, massive, larger than life environment, you know? I was going to speaking on the like the the villain arcs that was being talked about earlier. I feel like at the end of most of these movies, like we talked about how Spider-Man is never directly responsible for their death, but usually it's some sort of accidental suicide sort of thing. And I feel like Alfred Molina more or less realizing that he you know not wanting to die a monster is much more valuable in ending and sacrificing himself rather than, you know, accidentally jabbing yourself with your glider. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it, again, it feels like uh, it feels like we're going back to uh, you know gothic horror and like universal uh, monster movies in that sense, where the monsters you know reflect humanity back at us, and we realize that we ourselves uh, are the ones who who are the monsters, and he and you know they then they then reclaim some sense of humanity from us, and I feel like that is ox arc in in this is in this whole film is sort of reclaiming that humanity and and making sure as i mean quite literally making sure he does not die as a monster I was watching the the making of um, with the practical effects and like how they did the Doc Ock tentacles, and we learned it was like largely yeah, puppetry. it's amazing. And kind of in in and that like that looks so good, first of all. But then in like the Jurassic Park sort of way, where it's like whenever he's walking around, obviously it necessitates CGI. But for the close ups, it really makes all the difference. Yeah. That and just like just so the character can like interact with the arms, uh, I, I just really think it makes it feel that much you know more real and like and that would be a difference that production wise it probably would be all blue screen yeah it would it would all be done in post today but you i mean you're right it looks incredible and it feels very real which again like really helps that performance i i it, it helps you believe the the pain he's in and it helps you believe the crazy stuff he ends up doing because you you do sort of to an extent truly believe that those are uh, you know, con- you know, controlled by him. They are an extension of him. 
Yeah, and I I think that like the movie came at the exact right time for visual effects because I think um they were at a point where they couldn't do certain things if they were to do it fully CG if it wasn't some sort of yeah. mix of practical and visual effects. And I think I mean people kind of rag on the Raimi movies now for being cheesy and having like a little sometimes awkward wire work and things like that, but honestly I, I like prefer that. Yeah, um, me too. I've 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 been a longtime advocate of making movies look dirtier and yeah. worse um, because it makes it feel, I mean, more like real life. It doesn't have a glossy sheen over it. It it feels so much more tactile. Yeah, I mean, I, I adore practical effects, but I think the, the practical effects are, are, I think, an extension of the, like, the earnest approach to these films. And yeah. I think that is something that perhaps audiences are not, particularly comfortable with these days i think uh just if you i mean maybe they are maybe they're yearning for it on some level but i think if you look at any kind of blockbuster film being made today there is no you know there's there's all the irony there's all the uh you get the vibe that everyone kind of thinks like we're making these movies for fucking dorks and we're gonna make fun of the the material within the context of the film and and that's fine. I mean, those can be fun, but it's just such a completely different approach. And I think it is reflected in the filmmaking in a lot of ways. I think perhaps the the quintessence of what you're talking about is is the Aunt May character who we, we were talking about last episode. And we I were, heard you, but I listened to your math equation there. It was very uh, a <laughs> very scientific approach. <laughs> are you talking about the... Wait, I can do this. Uh, it's the Aunt May hotness differential. <laughs> Yeah, uh, she, she she gets hotter and younger each time. But listen to our last episode. Um, but Aunt May, you know, in the in this trilogy, is uh, just a really a nice old lady, and I think the most emotional scene, and it's like kind of heartbreaking, and you don't see this as a kid because I mean I wasn't emotionally uh, advanced enough. But when Peter confesses like his role, oh my goodness, in Uncle yeah. Ben's death. And then she, I don't, she just doesn't say anything, and you know doesn't want to touch him, and then walks away. I'm like, sheesh. Yes. Yeah. I mean, th- th- this wouldn't be allowed in, in uh, on n- n- you know, in, on a current Marvel movie. Yeah. I mean, it's it's almost pointless to compare these films to those MCU films. It, it feels like you have to because they are about the same character, but they it is. It's an easy comparison. To yeah, do. but it is. It really is apples and oranges. And and again, it's it's not it's not just a, a symptom of of the Marvel thing. It's just generally like we just don't make any films like this anymore. You know, it just doesn't really happen. But you're right. That scene in particular really really stands out these days. And that moment where the two of them are on like opposite sides of the frame and that ultra ultra wide two three five ratio. And you know, she's going up the stairs. He's sitting at the table. I mean, it, it feels like, I don't know, I mean, it almost feels like a Bergman film or something. Like, it's just like heart-wrenching and the, you know, it's a real moment where you want to just, you want to you hug both of them and you want to pull them back together, you know? Yeah, I, 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 that's one of my favorite scenes in the movie because it's like a pretty good encapsulation of what the movie kind of is, it, which is like a character study of Peter Parker. Mm-hmm. And I think the movie doesn't get enough credit for how, you know, the first movie is kind of this really fun, super high-paced, you know, kids action-adventure type story. Uh, and, and you know, love the first movie. But this movie t- makes like a... It, it, it would have been so easy for it to become a villain of the week type thing 
and just make it sort of fun and fluffy. And instead of that, well, you know, they go deeper and they, it, the whole movie is about like, I, I like that this sequel is taking the events of the first movie and seeing, well, how does that affect these characters? Where does that take them? Rather right. than we want, you know, Doc Ock has a bunch of arms. Here's a bunch of action sequences we can do. Let's go. Yeah. I, I wouldn't say that the first film has a particularly like happily ever after ending, but no, this is no. this, but this film is certainly like a, what happens after happily ever after, you know, it really is, is interesting. And in, it, it doesn't leave those, those thematic threads hanging. It explores them, which is yeah. another thing that I feel separates this from a lot of, you know, current blockbuster filmmaking is that this is a film that is enriched by thematic ideas and it explores them in every scene to the you know point of that one star review we were laughing at earlier the reasons why he loses his power are more thematic than anything else you know it is uh, yeah. it is an exploration of the the internal struggle of what it is like what it is what it is to be a superhero what it is to be a hero and give up you know that humanity within you and and again you know a thing that I said about Raimi on my show and that I think is again, not nothing, not nothing new, but the thing he really gets is that a great Spider-Man story also has to be a great Peter Parker story. And, and this one is exceptional in that regard. Yeah. I mean, the first half of this movie is like absolutely brutal. I mean, yeah. <laughs> we, we spoke about it last time, but like the evil dead movies, kind of seem like an outlier if if like they kind of seem so far away but if you really look at them those movies are just beating down on a character and then that's yeah. what this movie essentially is and like right. this movie 100% has my favorite like uh, depiction of parker luck where nothing good can ever happen for him <laughs> without something bad happening for him yeah and 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 i i really like how it takes you know a lot of the comedy comes from that it's not like dark and dour it's not sort of like this is depressing it's just like oh oh god like this just really just sucks from you know having to confess your admission of guilt in your uncle getting murder all the way yeah. down to like you get like a, a drink with no drink in it you know like, like things <laughs> oh, like god that. yeah that sequence is brilliant <laughs> yeah also as, as someone that has been uh has shot live events it's always like that <laughs> As in you have the lens cap on. Well, no, I would never make that mistake. But, uh, you know, you, you're just like, oh, can I sneak one of the mini, you know, quiches? And no, no, I can't. Uh, <laughs> so, so, Parth, uh, I watch, I, I'm more or less by, from your influence, I watch this movie through the lens of Parker Luck. And I think that functions, I, I never understood the Ursula Dickovich gets Peter a slice of chocolate cake and milk scene until until I looked at it through that. And I was like, he... He, he needs a break and this is all it takes to get him back in the game. <laughs> yes. I'm so glad you didn't, you didn't beat down on the scene because I, that's one of my favorite scenes because it's, it's throughout this whole movie. You're just watching him get battered down and, and it's just awful for him. And then for, and this is like the one time that somebody just does something nice. They don't, they don't need something from him. He doesn't need something from them. It's just a nice, you know, scene. And it, it's, it's, it's the type of thing that would 100% get cut out now because it's not serving a plot purpose. It's not a funny scene. 
but I'm so grateful that it exists. Yeah. I think the condensed version I noticed this time around, it was after Peter saved the the little kid from that from the house and then the one fireman is like, "Hey, great job." And then the other one's like, "Oh, too bad someone died on the fourth floor." <laughs> And it, it's like th- there was a split second of like, oh, I, I, I saved a child and that's enough. But th- th- that was m- my best definition of Parker Love. Yeah. And mm-hmm. and I th- like that that whole house burning scene um, and the whole thing with Peter losing his powers in general. Uh, I really like it because I think in the first movie, his whole motivation for becoming Spider-Man and doing the things that he's doing is out of guilt um, for causing his uncle to die. Whereas mm-hmm. I think this whole movie is sort of him bearing the burden of that guilt. And then, you know, any of us are human. Any of us will at some point be like, fuck this. This, this is like awful. And, right. And why, I am, like, why am I choosing to live with this? You know, what, like, like who decided I have to? Yeah. And what I like about this movie is it shows it's because it's what Peter wants. Peter wants to be Spider-Man. Peter can't stand it. If he sees somebody getting beat up in an alleyway, Peter can't stand it if there's a house burning and he knows he can save them. That that sort of realizing it's because he wants to do it is is I think that's pretty powerful. I agree. And it's you know, he I think there's also this notion of him having like found his his place in the world. You know, that is that's going to be his job. That's going to be who he is. And and that's how that's what will define him uh, moving forward, which I think is a really interesting way of of framing it versus just like just the great power comes great responsibility. And and also the the idea that you know that Aunt May gives us which is that I think there's a hero in all of us and him realizing that he can help, you know, he can help other people see that within themselves. Adam, going off of something you said in your Eye of the Duck Spider-Man episode. Uh you, there was a dream sequence where just like a flash of the Green Goblin's mask came out. And you just thought it was like really silly, and you were like, "I'm, I, I'm so glad that they don't have to like explain like the world of what actually caused this, and if it means that there's going to be something, you know, further down the line, or if it's an in-universe thing." Mm-hmm. And I, I thought the the same question was posed like this time with Peter having like the whole flashback to, or not flashback, more of a dream sequence of a new conversation with Uncle Ben, and I, and I was like, I was, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, but um. I, I just thought it would it would pose too many questions. Yeah, right. Because you you can just imagine people being like, "Oh, was this a conversation that he had? You know, in that car that we didn't see? Or is this like a weird alternate take that they're using?" And it's like, no, it's just a dream. Let it be a dream. Yeah, he's talking to his dead uncle. Don't think too deeply yeah. into it. <laughs> it's a conversation that needs to happen. I think. I mean, it's really it's a really bold move, honestly, to be like, "Hey, we're gonna uh, directly address the theme of the first film." We're going to directly put like these two conflicting ideologies in a car together and have them have them talk about it. Yeah. And for dead ghost Uncle Ben to be like, hey, I don't agree with what you're doing here. Yeah. Um, And then and then for Peter to have to, you know, like to trudge forward. Yeah. It's I mean, could you imagine that? Could you imagine having a a conversation with a, 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 a figure in your life who's passed and who inspired you and you go to them for uh, for advice and they're just like, no. 
you think it, you'd be in full control of yeah. your dream. You could you could play out your best case scenario, but to get shot down like that. Well, that's yeah. the thing, though, right? Dreams are all you know subconscious, and they're they're explorations of of you know what's going on underneath everything. And so it's it's not Peter talking to Uncle Ben; it's Peter talking to himself. Yeah. So as as hard as hard as this conversation is to have, I think we've we've showered this movie with enough compliments. And if if we were to get into the what doesn't work part. Um, does anyone have any volunteers? Uh, yeah, I'll say, you know, as much as the visual effects in this film are greatly improved over the first one, which is, you know, incredible that they were able to improve upon it in the first place, because, you know, while not everything in the first film holds up, so much of it works incredibly well. This film takes things to, to new heights. However... I do think that there are moments where they're using, you know, CG puppets that just do not quite work that, uh, you know, especially when they, they go full CG puppetry for Doc Ock, where, you know, he's got a long coat on and he's got hair and, you know, a human face. And those are things that are very, very hard to fully render. And the tech isn't quite there for it. And, uh, you know, it just kind of, it just kind of shows through, which, uh, is a bummer. But other than that, I think the whole film holds up. Uh, I'm on record as this being my favorite film of all time. <laughs> that being said, if I had to choose one, it would be that I think that I don't have a problem with it, but I think that Mary Jane's writing is a little mildly confused sometimes mm-hmm. in that it's not a hundred percent clear what her, it's not her angle isn't a hundred percent clear. And the thing that I think saves that, saves the movie from that really detracting from it in any way is that it's so singularly focused on Peter's journey that her arc kind of helps his arc, if that makes sense. Yeah. Her her arc is like an accessory to his, which is unfortunate. But that being said, I think, I think that ending thing of her showing up that whole over the wedding March, it's, it's beautiful. That's cinema. Yeah. It's a lovely sequence. (laughs) <laughs> I, I couldn't agree more. Go, go get him, Tiger. Like I know, I know, it's just reference to the comics, but some, mm, like, it's so good. Yeah. Go get him, Tiger. My main point of contention. Um, and the last thing I, I, I mean, re- reading negative reviews, there are a lot of people who are just like, well, MJ's a bitch. And the last thing I want to do is take a, you know, a marriage story or a before sunrise and basically be like, I don't like it because one party is being unreasonable. Um, <laughs> but, uh, basically Peter and MJ can't get on the same page romantically at all during this movie. And there are four different switches where one party is basically saying, I would like to have a romance with you. And the other party says that can happen. Mm-hmm. And they swap who's saying what four times. And I know that's, that's bad timing and somehow that's how love works. But in, in, in over a two hour period, you're just like, come on, guys. It's a will they won't they, you know, it's a I, classic I trope it. of, yeah, I think it works perfectly well. Another reason why I love their relationship in this film even though it is a bit underwritten, and as you say, Trent, you can it, the the will they won't they can be tiresome at times because that's an inherently tiresome trope, even when it's working at its at its best. Is that this film, if you took out the uh, Spider Man of it all, 
it still kind of works. It's still this, yeah. this like, you know, relationship yeah. drama, this friendship drama, this, this family drama. You still have so much of Peter Parker and his interiority and, and the minutiae of his life that it could still make for a compelling film. I mean, obviously it wouldn't make a ton of sense if you literally edited those scenes out, but I think the, the narrative arcs there still function. The other thing I'll say is that this, that relationship is like exactly the same as the relationship in You've Got Mail, where there is this degree of like, I know this thing about me that you want to know about me that you can't know. And this is the reason why we can't be together. And I just love the game of that. So yeah, I totally understand what you're saying, Trent, but it also completely works for me. And I also think Spider-Man at its core, he's almost better suited to television because it's a soap opera. All, like the 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 best parts of these movies are generally the character interactions and the drama of it all. That that mm-hmm. that's what's uh, so interesting about uh, so many of these movies. And so I don't mind the will they won't they stuff because that's what I signed up for. I want it exactly. And and it's also again. I mean, we keep we keep we keep mentioning stuff. Now it's a little difficult not to. It's the kind of thing where. It, that type of humanity that I kind of want more of that, you know, it's, it's always pleasing when it's there. Mm -hmm. Uh, The only other small note I have was that, you know, there's kind of the two kickers more or less. Like, uh, I mean, a lot of movies would end after he drops off Mary Jane, but then there's the, the green goblin tease. And then there's the whole wedding scene. And I was like, this green goblin scene would 100% be a post credit like like reveal yeah oh that's true yeah yeah and no and i totally think it functions well in the movie i I just thought you know 15 years can make a difference about the arrangement of (laughs) yeah it's a good point one one of the things i love about the whole harry thing is that everybody in the movie everybody's arc if you track them is about accepting who they are and changing to some degree and Mm -hmm. harry's arc is his lack of one Harry refuses <laughs> to see reason. He refuses to grow and, and you know, change. And it is that that then leads him towards the dark side, if you, if you were to mm-hmm. put it in Star Wars terms. Avenge me! No! Yeah, he's a very passive character in, in that regard. It's just things keep yeah. happening around him and he's just drinking about it. Yeah. Um, which, oh, you know, I have, I have a nitpick. I have one. Wait, oh, wow. I have one nitpick with this movie. It's hel- It's healthy to nitpick your favorite film of all time. It keeps you grounded. <laughs> yeah. In the beginning, Doc Ock tells Peter, "Intelligence is not a privilege. It's a gift. A gift to be used for the good of mankind." And then at the end of the movie, Peter oh, goes yeah. up to Doc Ock, and he's like, "You told me intelligence was a gift." And the Doc Ock goes, a privilege. What's that about? What what happened there? Come on, Alvin. That's a that's interesting. I I I remember when I was watching it the other day, my brain kind of you know did like a little double take, but I didn't quite remember that they had flipped that it was a flip of what had been said at the beginning. But you are you are right, and that is. That is not, it doesn't make much thematic sense there. Does it seem intentional? 
or do you think it was a misread? I feel like that's a big mistake. It's like both of them would have to flip their line. I, I guess like maybe one reading you could have on it is at the beginning he says that it's a gift and then over the course of the movie he changes and thinks it's a privilege, but that's not really anything in the text or subtext of the movie. So I, I feel like it's a mistake, but I feel like yeah. how the fuck do you make that mistake? That is that is a weird one. I wonder if it is meant to be an inversion of the first film where Peter refers to being Spider-Man as says, this is my gift, my curse. Yeah. So I wonder if it's meant to be a somehow a call, a, a call back to that. Yeah. I don't know. The only other thing I can say while we're here is that I didn't remember that there was an opening, you know, voiceover to this movie because it, it, I mean, it was so scandalous. The first one, and yeah. I was like, they, they've come back to their old bag of tricks. And, uh, it, it was less. It was less. Significant. Every every Spider Man movie in this trilogy opens with Peter Parker saying some dumb shit. They they uh, you you. What do you expect from an opening voiceover? If your film is only going to have opening voiceover, you expect it to be essentially an announcement of the theme that the film will explore. That's just what like if if you were in like a writing class, they I mean they would firstly they tell you don't use voiceover. But the next thing they would tell you is if you're going to do voiceover in the beginning. It can't be like record scratch about you wondering how I got here. It's got to be like an announcement of theme or an announcement of point of view or worldview or one of these things, which we'll then explore for the rest of the film. And in both of these films, it is not that. <laughs> no, it's just like Mary Jane exists, guys. She yeah. straight up exists. <laughs> and I love her. Um, but speaking of sort of like setting the stage like that, we uh, kind of we had something of a field day just talking about how the credits to the first one just like zoom in and out of the Spider-Man logo for five minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, and and yes, we defended it for, you know, the ambiance of it all. But this movie as setting the stage for what happened in the movie prior. If you hadn't seen it, I think you can be locked and loaded. And if you go and see like Jurassic Park 2, they ain't telling you what happened to Jurassic Park. <laughs> so I'm saying it's a helpful tool. Yeah, it's their uh, previously on Spider-Man. Yeah. And with 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 Alex Ross art and it all looks beautiful. It looks great. And uh, previously like what you've been missing shouldn't work like in a two and a half hour version, but it totally works. Yeah. It also, I mean, as you are cuz the other thing about it is it's just reminding you how great the first film was. So you yeah. see there's like shit. We're back. Yeah. We're doing this all again. Yeah. <laughs> you sit down to watch this one, you hear the theme, you see those images and you're just like, "Oh god, yes. Here I am. I'm good to go." <laughs> so I I feel like the the ratings of of this is going to be pretty underwhelming, but we can uh I mean, underwhelming in that we're all going to say our praises and then and then go home. But I uh we want to do that, Parth? I'm down. Sure. Sure. Uh, oh, do you want me to go, to, to go first? Yeah, I mean, we're all going to have similar spiels. Uh, yes, this is the best comic book movie ever made. It's the best superhero movie ever made. Uh, it is one of the best movies ever made. And it is a <laughs> 10 out of 10. It Having this movie in existence is not only a privilege, it's a gift. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. I'm going to give this movie a, a 9 out of 10 for the sake of diversity, just because it, it... You're I mean, saving your 10 for Spider-Man it, 3? Uh, <laughs> very nice. I, I try to be conservative with my 10. It has the most it, amount of it, Ursula. I know you love Ursula, Trent. 
Yeah, I, I, we're turning this into an Ursula pod. But um, <laughs> if something is to be a 10, I have to like pause it in the middle and be like, damn, this is awesome. And I mean, Spider-Man 2 is awesome, but uh, it, it, there was, it, it was missing one extra thing. I would, I would say it is a, a positive thing that you did not feel the need to pause the film because no film was designed with pauses. No filmmaker is like, this is when they will pause the film. So Th- This is true. The pauses are more of just like, I need a minute to gather myself because of how awesome it is. I you, understand, you I understand that. You watched that train sequence and you didn't? I, I mean, I, n- not to get into the weeds here, but I, I, I kind of like the Aunt May on the side of the building fight more than the train sequence, even though I, I know the train wow, sequence is hot take. like the best action set piece in all time. That's I mean, such that a hot train take. sequence is... That, that train sequence on its own is a 10 out of 10. I mean, yeah. it's, it's amazing. And also, it's, it is the... There is I, the, the moment where he's unmasked and they're all just like, we won't say anything. Like, ah... It's like the most amazing thing, you know? Yeah, it sure is. Uh, one more thing about that scene, though. It has a sort of, like, in the original Spider-Man, where there is the, hey, don't mess with Spider-Man! Yeah, exactly. Sort of scene. How, in this one, there's, like, you gotta go through me. But it, like, proves fruitless. But, like, I like I, I like the effort. Yeah. But it definitely seemed like it... Well, the, the same energy was, was going well, towards... Well, it, it has to one. be fruitless because there is nothing that these, you know, regular New Yorkers can actually really do to protect a superhero from a supervillain. But I, I love that these films are so grounded in the New York of it all. And Spider-Man is, you know, again, he's a character that could literally only work in New York because he requires skyscrapers for, for what he does. Um, so... I think it's incredibly smart of Raimi to imbo- into both of these films to have moments where New York has his back. Before we got on, Trent and I were talking. The extras are so good. The extras are excellent. Because <laughs> like every time Spider-Man does something, you have some lady just out of nowhere go, go Spidey, go! And it's lovely. Hey, if they had a line of dialogue, they're a featured player. If they didn't have a line of dialogue, they're a background artist. You will respect oh, sorry. them. sorry. Apologies. Yeah, we, we we were we were thinking about like the the Michael Bayness of it all. That after every action shot, it hangs on a little bit, and then someone with a mini skirt wanders in, and you're just like, whose whose niece is that? You know, there there was an awful lot of that in this film. I didn't remember so much of that in the first one, but there was. If yeah, you know, talking of nitpicks, that that's probably my nitpick is the number of uh, screaming women uh, at the end of action sequences. Here is a bit gratuitous, or is it not enough? Good question. The only other thing I can say is that, you know, since there's a prominent building burning down scene in the first one, that there being a prominent building burning down scene in the <laughs> second one, I know in one he's Spider-Man and one he's Peter Parker, but it's definitely like, oh, we've we, we've done Spider-Man in bur- burning building before. But the point is the contrast, right? Yeah. I agree with you. Yeah. I agree. I agree. I mean, look, much of this film is kind of... In the same way that, you know, Evil Dead 2 is like, what if I made Evil Dead 1 again, but way better? This is also like, what if I made Spider-Man 1 again, but way better, but I don't have to introduce him because you already know him. You know, it is a lot of the same same kind of thing. And I think like the problem that he would have ended up, I mean, we'll, we'll end up talking about Spider-Man 3. It's only a matter of time. That movie had a lot of studio mandates that made it hard as hell for them to have a movie. But I think... One and two, because two is such a almost direct, what if we took this scenario 
but instead of him being Spider-Man, he's Peter Parker. Like that happens a lot in this movie. Yeah. And so it's kind of a perfect duology. So I think you would have had a problem of changing anything. If if you kept it the same, it would become repetitious. And if you changed it, it's like, this isn't, this isn't what I like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I, I say, let's, we just take one second to give it up for the small child who helped Peter when he was hanging. <laughs> he couldn't have done it without her. How, how he, how she put her hand on his hand and then moved it up kind of. <laughs> Thank God he's safe. That that child is the real superhero. Their uh, their strength is unbelievable. Uh, everyone, anyone can wear the mask. Adam. Yes, exactly. But my my raising is uh, is a ten out of ten as well, uh, and f- and for all the reasons that have already been said, it's just uh, it is a perfect film for me. Beautiful. I uh, like parts that will hopefully cover Spider Man three at some point. But this seems to be the natural conclusion of Spider Man two. Although. I think should we before we log off here, should we briefly talk about the return of Doc Ock? What? Uh, oh, you, oh, tell us, fuck! Tell us <laughs> did you? There was this, uh, you know, interview that Alfred Molina did the other day where he just like completely broke all of his NDAs, and he's just like, "Yep, I'm in the new Spider-Man film," and the way it works is that. And, you know, they, they cut directly to the moment in Spider-Man 2 right before I kill myself and they zap me into the new film and they're de-aging me and everything. And uh, so does that does that mean all the other villains are coming back too? so far? I, it's I just him and Jamie Foxx's Electro from the amazing movies. Right. Those are the only people that have officially like broken their NDAs and, and said something. But then there's, you know, there's been reports of basically anyone involved in any of these Spider-Man films uh, has, has been reported to be involved in some way. Uh, it's just so depressing because unless they take like Doc Ock and then they're like, oh, I'm not going to help you, Peter, because I spent all my my previous hours trying to kill you. And now I'm going to try to help this version of you. Like, unless they do that, if they just make him a villain again, I, I expect they'll I expect they'll make him a villain again, because if they're pulling him out of the timeline at that exact moment, he has not yet been pushed by Peter to rediscover his humanity. Wait, but I, I wait, what, what? Ba- based on what I'm gathering from the interview, they're grabbing him during that final scene, but before he has his heroic turn. Oh, so they're going to do the least interesting thing they could possibly do with this concept. <laughs> okay. Who, who I, I wanted to be clear on that. Quick, quick ending note. There's definitely a parallel to be seen in the end of Jaws 2 and, uh, and, and, and Doc Ock getting electrocuted by the wire here because the shark in Jaws 2 goes down the exact same way. <laughs> I'm glad we got a Jaws 2 reference in this. Wow, yeah. Hey, it's it's, directed it's it. not often you get a Jaws 2 reference. Jaws 2 is directed by Steven Spielberg? I don't think so. Yeah, it sure is, and so is Jurassic Park 2. Well, I know Park Jurassic Park 2, 2 is. is. I don't know that Jaws 2 is. Okay, guys, uh, I'm feeling pretty good Trent, about this. I feel like you're wrong. I, this, this would be an embarrassing moment to be wrong. I feel, I, I feel compelled to look this up. Well, Trent, be prepared to be, prepared to be embarrassed because Jaws 2 is directed by Janot Zark. I, I'm not sure. He's French. Yeah. Imagine my embarrassment. Steven Spielberg didn't... I'm sorry, Steven Spielberg. If you're listening, you didn't direct Draws 2. The truth comes out. <laughs> well, uh, Parth, do you want to tell the people what comes next for the show? So, uh, next week, we have an interview with the production designer of Judas and the Black Messiah, Sam Lysenko, who also did 
you know, work on Uncut Gems, Good Time, Francis Ha, some other cool movies wow. we talk about. He was a nice man. He was a very nice man, and it was a very nice conversation, a nice hefty uh, hour, 20-minute long conversation, and it, you can check it out and on our show next week on Sunday. Adam, you tell people you tell people about, you know, say, say your goodbyes, tell them where they can find your pod. Yeah, uh, well, if you enjoy hearing me blather on about films, you can listen to my podcast, Eye of the Duck, which you can find on any podcasting platform you can think of. It's on all of them. Uh, you can find that show on social media at I have the duck pod, and you can find me on social media at Adam Bowl. And thank you so much for having me on. This was such a, such a good time. So lovely to talk about this film with you. Thank you. Our pleasure. <laughs> See you later. Bye guys. Goodbye. Goodbye.